Hello, greetings, and welcome to Alchemy. It's great to have your company, whether you're a long-term or a first-time listener, and this episode will be no exception. We're free and on demand from iTunes and alchemyradio.net, and you can follow us and join the community on Facebook and Twitter, so say hello, don't be shy. We exist, of course, thanks to your kind donations, so a very big thank you to everybody who does donate via our website. We're completely non-profit and intend to stay that way. So, on to the show. Our guest this episode is Max Egan. Max is from New South Wales, Australia. He runs the website thecrowhouse.com, which covers a vast array of different topics spanning government corruption to the mysteries of our ancient past. He's always got a lot to say. I caught him at the Free Your Mind conference when he gave a very powerful presentation recently. So I'm very much looking forward to this chat. Max, you're very welcome to Alchemy. How are you? I'm good, brother. Thanks for asking me on the show. Pleasure to come and talk. No, it's great to have you on. Myself and Stevie have been followers of your work for a long, long time, for many, many years. And I think we're going to have a very varied and fruitful discussion here with a load of topics that we'll be touching on. Before that, there's a question I ask everybody on the show, Max, and that's how did you get from where you are? How did you get from where you were to where you are now? Well, look, I've kind of always been awake for my whole life. I've, I've always kind of lived on the outside of society. I knew something was terribly wrong when I was four years old. So I became a musician as soon as I was able to leave school and old enough to leave school. I became a musician and kind of lived on the outside of society for most of my life. And, you know, it got to a point where, you know, it became necessary to kind of put the research into action and start speaking out. And uh, I ended up just doing what I'm doing. I mean, I never really planned to be a radio host or make films or do any of the stuff that I'm doing. But, but when you start speaking out, I guess that, you know, if it resonates with people, then they want to hear more and you just sort of follow the path and end up where you are. So it's an interesting thing, actually. I was sitting back the other day in a, in a really strange place. I was sitting in Acapulco. That's right, in January. And I'm sitting here just thinking, fancy me sitting here at a resort in Acapulco. How did I ever get into this position, you know? So it's an interesting thing, but it's just where life takes you, I think. And um, yeah, like I said, I've always been awake. I've, I've always felt the need to speak out against the system. And you know, it got to a point in life where, you know, my life kind of propelled me onto this path because I think the message was needed and, and spirit just wanted me to do it. So yeah, here I am. I don't really have a choice in the matter, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think any of us do, but the age of four, that's a very young age to uh, know that something is up. I certainly don't think that I had any inkling that anything was up age four. So what was there any specific incident that made you realize at that young age or what was it? It was when we went out in the forest. My mother took me out into the forest. I'd never been out into the forest before and I, I thought it was incredible, the national park, you know. And um, I said to her, you know, why can't we come and live here? Let's, let's, let's live here. This is so much better than down in town where we're living. Yeah. And she said, well, we can't. And I said, why not? There's nobody else living here. And she said, well, we can't because we don't own the land. And I said, who owns the land? And she said, the government. And I said, how did they get it? And she said, you'll understand when you get older. And I just thought, no, I'll never understand this. 
and I couldn't figure out the concept of owning the land. I couldn't figure out how anyone could think they could own the land. It just really upset me when I was four. I thought I'd been born onto the wrong planet. I thought that everybody was mad. And it was that whole concept of, of ownership, the, the concept of owning a piece of the earth, that we couldn't just live somewhere because we wanted to live there. Mm. And uh, that, that was a, a big wake-up for me. And uh, I just kind of sat back and watched society from that point and just thought everybody was nuts. I just thought I was in a, in a nut house. And, uh, yeah. Well, you weren't too wrong. Everything does seem upside down. And where do you stand on the concept of ownership now? Is it equally as ridiculous to you, Max? Or have you kind of tempered that a little bit with the heavy quotation marks, real world? Well, look, not really. I think that the concept of land ownership is absurd. I don't think you can own the Earth. The Earth's been here for 4.6 billion years. Yeah, we're here for 50 or 100. I mean, do the math. Yeah. You don't You don't own anything, you know. And really, if you, if you spend your time and you spend your money buying a block of land and building a house and you end up paying mortgage for it for the rest of your life and then you're tied to it, you can't travel or do all these other things. So the house owns you, you know, the land owns you. It really does. I mean, sure, I mean, there's places where we might want to be and be custodian of a place for a while, but I think being a custodian of a place is a far better way of looking at something than suggesting that you're the owner of something, you know? It's just, I don't know, the whole concept of ownership. I, I don't really believe that I own anything. I'm just sharing space. I'm sharing time with things. But I don't, I don't consider that I own them. I don't even own my body. It's just a vessel that I'm using for a while. So I have a problem with the whole concept of ownership. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, <laughs> you're going to leave that body and you're going to leave that land and you're not going to own it anymore anyway so what really is the point in the first place I can relate to that four year old you it's something that I've struggled with for years and years and having gone down the route of legal battles with banks over mortgages and this kind of thing and come out relatively unscathed on the other end I know exactly what it is you're talking about and despite the system trying to entrench me as much as possible and to try and knock me down as a result of my railing against it eventually, it just seems as ridiculous as it ever did in the first place to me. So I totally know what you're talking about. And there's lots going on, I suppose, that is planted in our subconscious. That's just one concept and topic that we've touched on very, very early in the conversation. But is there anything that stands... I suppose the question I'm going to ask you, Max, is... Right now, what do you think is the most important issue facing humanity in 2016? Because I heard your talk at the Free Your Mind conference, which we talk about a lot on this show. I was very, very struck by it. I was struck by the spirit in which you gave the talk. I was very kind of struck as well by the flow state that you seemed to go into when you were speaking. It was a very organic kind of conversation. You spoke a little bit about the issues of humanity, humanity versus madness and that kind of issue. So what's what's the big one for you right now? Because we all know there are many, many dots that need to be connected. Well, look, you know, the big issue, of course, is human freedom and, and how we establish that. Um, you know, Waking people up to the fact that we're living in a, in a slavery system and a, a paper-based fictional legal system and an issue that I've been addressing um, very much lately and suggesting that other people look at is the issue of Palestine because I think the issue of Palestine, specifically Gaza Strip, provides a, a tool, a mechanism that we can use to free ourselves from this legal system or at least expose it as being the fiction that it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... a. Uh, it's an international war crime. The, the fact that Gaza exists is a war crime. 
This is collective punishment under the Fort Geneva Convention. So my argument is that the, the politicians, all the things they're doing, all this legislation they're bringing in, in in all of our countries, which is removing all of our rights and all the terrible things they're doing, if this legislation can be seen to have been enacted by someone who's supporting war crimes, then what makes the legislation valid? You know, if we're going to go along with this paper-based legal system, then it has to apply to everybody. And there's a piece of paper that says that the guys who are writing all these laws are war criminals, you know, i.e. the Geneva Convention. So to me, that's a, a... I mean, and I don't expect to find any remedy in the legal system. I think it's all fiction. But by using things such as Gaza Strip and the Geneva Convention, you can expose the fact to the people that it's not a just system, that it is all fiction, that it doesn't apply to the politicians. They only make it apply to us. So, you know, it's, it's an important issue, I think. Now, I think that if we don't deal with the issue of Palestine and the issue of Gaza Strip, then it's, it's coming home to all of us. It's going to come home to all of our countries. I think it's, it, the level of opportunity that Gaza Strip and Palestine provides for the world is, is unprecedented. If people would um, put down their stuff and put down their prejudgment about how they feel about Jews or Muslims or whatever and realise that what we're talking about here is children in collective punishment, and it's an open war crime that is being supported by tens of thousands of politicians all around the world, which gives us the legal right and the moral duty to have all of these people removed from office immediately and all the legislation they write roll back. I mean, if we do this, we can stop all the fracking, we can stop all the TPP, all the all the wars, all the stuff these people are doing. It's all the same people that are doing it. Mm. You know, and if you really look at it, well, what's one legal issue that we can use to affect this entire system on a global scale? You know, what, what is one issue that can be applied to everybody? And there is one, and that's Gaza Strip. And so it's an important thing you know, that people need to look at, I believe. And you've experienced at the coalface, so to speak. You've been to Gaza. Tell us a little bit about that experience and how it went for you and how it changed you, if it changed you at all. Oh, it did. It's an incredibly moving experience going to Gaza. I mean, you go there and it's a world of children. It just is. It's, it's people living in the most abject poverty, in, in the most horrendous situations, in uh, the infrastructures <clears throat> crumbling around these people. And it's a population mainly of children. The average age in Gaza Strip is 17. You know, 1.8 million people with the average age of 17, which shows you that over half the population is under the age of 18. So this is a, it's pure child abuse. And they're deprived of everything. I mean, about 10% of the water in Gaza is drinkable. And it was terrible when I was there in 2012. And since then, it's, it's suffered incredible bombing campaigns at the hands of Israel, 51-day bombing campaign in 2014, which just blew the place to pieces. And it's so much worse there now than what it was when I was there. I've been trying to get back in for the last three years, but it's almost impossible. But it's, it's a terrible situation. It's a, it's a human rights catastrophe of unprecedented proportions. It's child abuse. It's been supported by thousands of politicians all around the world. And it's truly the greatest moral dilemma of our time. It's been going on for 68 years. And, you know, it's a, it's a theatre as well because Israel could go and wipe these people out and control the whole area very quickly if it wanted to. Yeah. There's very little land left in, in West Bank and Gaza. I mean, Israel's very powerful military. It could simply go in there and simply comb the place free of everybody and ethically cleanse the entire area. But they need the Palestinians there in order to have the manufactured threat of terrorism in order to allow them to keep expanding, you know, keep receiving weapons from the West and keep expanding, which is what they're doing. So the whole thing is theatre, and the Palestinians are the ones who are suffering because of it. 
But it's a huge key and a huge tool that we can all use if people would simply open up their hearts to the children in Gaza. It's a huge opportunity for all of us, and truly the level of opportunity it provides is, is as I said, it's, un, it's unprecedented. You know? And it is an astonishing situation because what amounts to one giant concentration camp, to use that inflammatory term, especially inflammatory when speaking about Israel, because seemingly we can't mention the word Israel without having all kinds of accusations levelled at us. What is it, do you think, that allows the world and allows the general public to kind of brush Palestine out of our collective consciousness? I know we have the media and they don't draw attention to it. I mean, they'd much rather look at trivialities or other areas. But I mean, most people are pretty aware of what's going on in Palestine. Maybe not the extent of it, but they do know what has happened over the last 60 odd years. But for some reason, there is this kind of fear or there is this trepidation when it comes to speaking out about it. Why do you think that is, Max? What's the reason? Well, because of the stigma involved in speaking out against the state of Israel. You know, the whole concept, like you said, you get accused of anti-Semitism if you say a word against this nation. And, of course, everything this nation's doing is is, uh, riding on the back of the Holocaust. You know how these people are victims and rah, 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 and we can't say anything bad about them because of all the terrible things they've been through. And, you know, they, they, unfortunately, the Israeli government wears the Holocaust like a badge on its sleeve and it uses it to justify all of its actions and its ethnic cleansing policy towards the Palestinian people. And the more and more we speak out about it, as you say, the more legislation we hear. In some countries, it's actually a crime to speak out against Israel. It's actually a crime to question the Holocaust figures. It's a crime to, you know, suggest that this country is doing anything wrong. They're trying to even outlaw the um, BDS movement, the Boycott, Divest and Sanction movement, to uh, they're calling it an anti-Semitic movement. And yeah, Israel calls anybody who speaks out against it, it's, it's, a, it's a hate fest or whatever, you know. So it, it's, uh, it's theatre, but I think people are seeing through it. I really do. And I, I just speak out more. You know, you can, if you call me an anti-Semitic for speaking out the Israeli government, well... You know, with what the Israeli government is doing, I will wear that, that name like a badge on my sleeve if that's what you want to give it to me. I mean, I don't agree with it, but hey, whatever, I don't care. It will not stop me speaking out against the, the atrocities that this state is carrying out. And like I say, it gets away with it because of the Holocaust, because of this victim mentality of the, of the people. Um, everybody in Israel feels like they're a victim, which causes them to act so aggressively against everybody else. They're very heavily programmed. And unfortunately, most of the world is programmed into supporting this state in whatever it does. But like I said, I think it's uh, it's falling apart now. I think the wheels are falling off. People are seeing it for what it is. And what do you think the, the ultimate result of that will be? Would you have any kind of imagined timescale on it? Will we see the liberation of Palestine? Will we see the dissolution of the state of Israel? Or what's going to happen there? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Israel is ever going to be fully gone, but I I really do believe we will see the state of Palestine rise back up. I do believe that we will see the 7 million Palestinians around the world being given the right of return to their lands. I think this will happen. Um, I don't think that uh, Israel is, is ever going to get away with what it's trying to do and expand to the extent that it wants to expand. Um, it could go very bad. I mean, it could even be part of a, a plan. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? This, this, you know, the Jews around the world are kind of being forced to return to Israel because of the actions of the state. It's making it very hard for Jewish people around the world to sort of maintain any stability because 
they're pretty well some of the most hated people on the planet at the moment simply because of what the the state of Israel is doing. Mm. And most of the Jews around the world, I mean, they're not responsible for this. So it's an interesting thing. I mean, now they could be getting set up. Maybe they'll send them all back to Israel and who knows what, what could happen to them then. So it's it's hard to know, man. There's so many plays going on at the moment and there's so many forces and you know, factions working against each other to get the upper hand. It's hard to know where it's going to go, but ultimately I think humanity is going to get the upper hand. I don't think that this catastrophe is going to get away with what it's doing. I don't think the state of Israel is going to get away with what it's doing. I do think its days are numbered. I think the human spirit is far too strong for any of this to really come to the conclusion they want it to come to. You know, I think we've proved that time and time again in the past that um, the human spirit will will get through all of this sort of stuff. You know, we, we will not be squashed. We'll, we'll keep moving the goalposts. And the more they take away from us, then the stronger we become. And with regard then to the human spirit, do you think there is some kind of an awakening or an enlightenment that's happening at the moment more so than in the past? Or do you think it's just that there's more adversity being thrown at people on an almost daily basis? So it's coming to the fore and shining through. And I'd like to talk to you about that, that kind of enlightenment process, because I read a recent article of yours discussing the destructive process that takes place regarding enlightenment, which I thought was quite fascinating. There was a, a different perspective offered by you on that. So let's talk a little bit about that, about kind of in broad strokes, the awakening or enlightenment of humanity as it is at the moment, how much is needed, what needs to be done and the process behind that. Because most people think, oh, well, yeah, I'm not going to just wake up in the morning and there'll be bright shining lights and everything will be grand. And that's my awakening. It doesn't really work like that, does it? No, it doesn't at all. Look, there is a huge awakening happening. And I think it's, uh, it is unprecedented. I think it's, it's never before in history have we seen this much of an awakening because we've got the internet. The world is so much smaller now than what it's been. I think more and more people are seeing it. But again, it is a destructive process. Enlightenment is a destructive process. Many people, you know, they seek the path to knowledge and the path to enlightenment, and they think that they're going to become some sort of a guru or some sort of a light being or something. But it's a very destructive process. It's a breaking down of everything you believe to be true. And that's what really, that's what enlightenment is. It is bringing light to a subject. It is bringing true knowledge of something to something. So... You know, it's it's getting rid of all of your preconceived beliefs about anything, stripping away bare anything you have believed to be true and seeing what is actually true and accepting it for what it is. And it can be a very, very destructive process because everything that you, you thought about your life, everything that was your reality suddenly breaks down and breaks away. And sometimes it can be a very shocking thing for people. People can have almost nervous breakdowns when they wake up to what reality really is. So it's not anything that is going to lead you to become a better person or a more spiritual being or anything like that. Enlightenment is, is a seeing of the truth, the, the stark, harsh reality of what the world is. That is enlightenment. And it is not anything pleasant or, or warm and fuzzy at all. And, and when you do become enlightened and you do see the world for what it is, you develop a need to actually do something about it. You know, you can't you can't know the things that we know and not do something about it. I mean, even when people say to me, "Well, why do you do what you do? You don't make money out of it. It's not a job. It's not this." I mean, why do you bother? You could just be off having your life. And well, yeah, I could, but I couldn't 
know what I know and do that with any degree of comfort mm. because I can see what's coming. I can see what's going on around me. I can see how easy it would be to fix, you know. And when you gain knowledge, you, it comes with that a certain level of responsibility that you're going to do something with that knowledge. You need to share the information and apply it to the world that you live in. Otherwise, what was the point anyway? What was the point in the first place? You know, too often we go down this path thinking it's going to be about self-enlightenment. I'm looking to make myself a better person. It's this whole narcissistic approach to reality. But that's not what enlightenment really is. As I said, enlightenment is seeing the truth and seeing things in all their ugly warts and you know, for their, you know, what they really are. And that is, that is not always pretty. No, it certainly isn't. And I think the onus, as you said, is on us then when we are armed with the knowledge to actually do something about it. Because I think if we have knowledge and we choose to ignore it, well, we are in some way then complicit in what's going on, no matter how terrible it might seem or no matter how uncomfortable that might be to the paradigms of a lot of people. There is a complicity there. And I mean, once we are armed with the knowledge, we are charged, as I see it, to actually do something about that. So when did you kind of, I know it was early for you, but when did you decide to take steps to actually not follow the path that I am assuming society would have tried to put you on? Maybe parents, maybe relatives, maybe friends. Look, Max, you, you, you got to go down this route. You got to do this. You need security. You need comfort. You need all those things because you totally eschewed that and you went down a completely, a, a more transient kind of life, which is something I can certainly relate to. Well, yeah, that happened in high school. Like I was in my third year of high school and I'd been already kicked out of three schools and because I was arguing with my teachers too much and I had my own desk outside the principal's office in my last <laughs> six months of high school, in my fourth high school. And I was just sitting there thinking, well, what am I doing? Why am I even doing this? And I just walked out halfway through my exams and thought, I'm, I'm never going to do this again. I'm going to get a job as a musician and, and not look back. And that's what I did. So I never looked back. I just, I just realized halfway through high school that I wasn't going to do this and I wasn't going to participate and I just opted out of the whole system and I just lived on the outside of society and lived my life that way. And I've never voted, I've never filled in a tax form, I've just never participated in the system and, and that's just the way I've always lived and it's just kind of worked for me. It almost sounds a little bit like you never learned to think in language and you kind of, you used the language of feelings and emotions instead because we're all taught to think in language and I came across a meme online very, very recently in the last couple of days and it was somebody wondering essentially what would happen if we never learned language? How would we be able to think? How would we be able to form thoughts and function in any sense? And it reminded me again of another article that you wrote about the power below the surface. It related to thinking in language and how that's not always the way to do things. We have this inherent power that seems to be buried beneath, like an iceberg or something like that. You know, the real power is, is below the surface. It's not what you see on top. Is that's something that would be kind of an accurate reflection of your life to date, the, the, the idea of maybe not thinking so much in language and not focusing on the ties that bind us, be it through letters, numbers, spelling, spells, wordplay, and actually focusing on what's inside a little bit more. Has that been a central part of your life? Well, yeah, I mean, especially most recently, you know, just understanding that you're speaking an electromagnetic language all the time. You're speaking the language of feeling and emotion all the time. That the, the electromagnetic field that you're generating with your heart is a language and it's talking to the field around you all the time. 
and that you can affect your life by learning how to speak this electromagnetic language because life will mirror <clears throat> will mirror the same electromagnetic frequencies back to you. So if you're in a state of, of happiness and love and joy, then that's what's going to be mirrored back to you. And it isn't a, a state of putting, this, uh, putting yourself in a, a false state of that, you know, like, you know, going out and pretending to be happy or pretending to be joyful or pretending you're full of love and light like a lot of these hippie people do. It's genuinely feeling that, genuinely knowing what you are and loving yourself for what you are and loving others for what they are, seeing the perfection in yourself and seeing it in others. When you can see this and you realize that you're having an electromagnetic conversation, not only with people, but with reality itself, and that the results of that electromagnetic conversation is what is being mirrored back to you, you start to see how you can shape your life and how you can change things. And you start to see what a responsibility you have for being in the right intention in what you do because of how you're charging the field when you're doing things with the wrong intention, when you're pretending to be happy and when you're ignoring your emotions. I mean, this is why I have no problem expressing my emotions as well. I mean, if I get angry, I'll get angry and I'll express it, but I don't hold a grudge. I don't, I don't carry on with it. I don't, you know, I can, I can yell and scream at someone and then five minutes later, they're my best friend. I've got no problem with them, mm. but I had to get that out. That's a very rare out. thing, isn't it? Well, it is, but you've got to get it out and not bottle it up because then you bottle it up and you're having all of these weird feelings going on while you're pretending to be nice to someone and you've got this whole weird electromagnetic schism going on. What are you generating? What are you pumping into the field? And what sort of a reality are you creating? And things usually go wrong from that point. Relationships start to break down, you know, confidence in people, your confidence in yourself, all sorts of things start to go wrong because you're not speaking the right language. You're just being aware of this electromagnetic language. This is something I tried to put out in a film I, I did in 2009 called The Awakening. Mm. It's actually had a lot, a lot of views on YouTube. So, um, But I spoke all about that, the fact that we're speaking this language. I think it's a really important understanding for people to have. You know, it, it can change your reality knowing that you're speaking this and realizing the responsibility you have of, of learning how to speak it. But I never really... It's a thought in language when I was a kid. I always, I always thought about this emotional sort of journey I was on. I could always feel the emotional content of the room I was in. Mm. And so it was uh, just the way I used to operate. And being a musician as well, I mean, you're very much in the moment. You're very much in the now. You're very much in the flow. You know, that whole electrical field that you, you get set up from a, a song that you love or that you're listening to. And if you've ever played music, you know what it's like. You get in that that zone and there's this, this special magic that happens, you know, mm -hmm. this is all electromagnetic language. And you know, I was very, very aware of it when I was young. And so that's kind of the way I lived my life. When I was younger, I would hear people, people who I would have considered hippies, for example, are a little bit out there, you know, I wouldn't have been able to relate to them in any way. And you'd hear them talking about the language of love or they'd talk about the language of nature. The language of music was, was something that I did pick up on at a very young age and it has since become my job if you want to call it that I mean I, I never see it as work but it is how I earn a living is that what you're speaking about then I mean are these are all these different languages in inverted commas bound together by the electromagnetic field is it just a different expression of the same thing when people speak about them well, yeah, I think it is. I mean, you know, you, you're a musician, yeah. You you know that feeling, that zone that you get, that yeah. special place. That it's it's electromagnetism. It's this. It's it's hard to even define it as an emotion. It's just this this feeling. This is energy that has been created, and you can get that same sort of feeling in that same space just from looking at a flower. 
you can go outside and just, if you really get into it and you get into the now and into the moment with this flower, it's as beautiful as listening to your favourite song or playing your favourite song. It's a beautiful thing. It's all, it's all connected. Of course it is. Everything's connected. It's an entirely electrical universe. And every single aspect of the universe is different types of electromagnetism, different types of electromagnetism that reacts with itself in different magnetic ways and, and with attraction and repulsion and sets up certain fields and certain emotional things. I mean, yeah, it's all related. The whole thing is related. And that then, I would imagine, and we have discussed this on the show with various guests before, but it leads us nicely into the issue of the disruption then of the electromagnetic field and how that's affecting not just the collective consciousness, but individuals. For example, in a room with Wi-Fi, that's got to have some kind of physical effect because we are talking about something physical here, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. Wi-Fi is incredibly damaging to people. It's it's you know, the electromagnetic pollution that we're swimming in at the moment is absolutely horrendous. And it, yeah, this is one of the ways we're being attacked. And when you consider it, that you are an electromagnetic being, everything you experience is electrical. You know, every touch, every taste, every smell, it's electromagnetic impulses going to your brain. And with the chemical spraying and all the stuff that they're doing, the air is no longer neutral. It's, it's now electrically charged. They're putting in all these smart grids and Wi-Fi and stuff everywhere. Absolutely horrendous what, what it's doing to people. And uh, I think it's causing a lot of sickness. It's causing a lot of uh, emotional stress and emotional imbalance in people. Mm. Um, physiological imbalance, psychological imbalance. Yeah, it's, it's doing all sorts of damage to us. And what can we do about that? Because for anybody who lives, say, in an urban area, for example, it's inescapable at this stage, that soup, that electromagnetic mixture of this, that and the other going on. And I mean, I've absolutely no doubt that it is affecting everybody. And there are people who are manifesting physical symptoms and can quite quickly and visibly do it in the same way as any sickness can come on. So what can people do for themselves? Is there any way to repel this? Is there any way to overcome it? Or are there any solutions to it? That's a really, really good question, and it's a, it's a one that people, I think, are looking for the answer for. I mean, I've got a little device that I wear which protects me from EM fields, but, uh, I mean, not everybody can do that, so it's just something that we need to, to look at. I mean, I'd like to see all the Wi-Fi go. I really would. I, I mean, I don't have any Wi-Fi at all at my home where I live in, uh, in Australia when I'm there. Yeah. We don't have any Wi-Fi internet. We don't have any uh, Wi-Fi mouse or anything. We don't even receive mobile signals where I live. So it's a very clear portal. But, I mean, it is a huge uh, problem that we're facing, and it's, it's, it's so prevalent now that you have to wonder how we're going to get away from it. There's certain countries, I think Sweden or Switzerland, where Wi-Fi has been banned in schools. So that's a start. But, Mm. uh, I mean, it's everywhere anyway. So, yeah, it's a good question, man. I don't know how we're going to deal with that one. Maybe by just waking people up to the fact that it's not serving us, you know. I mean, everything on the Earth vibrates at very, very low frequencies, and now we've got stuff running around the atmosphere in the billions and billions of hertz. So it's uh, it's quite, quite scary, really. It is. And of course, the earth itself resonates and has its own. I mean, we often hear about the Schumann resonance and how as beings of frequency, we are tied into that and we're inextricably linked or so we thought until suddenly that electromagnetic pattern or field was disrupted. And it leads to so much discord. Sometimes I can walk into a particularly 
electromagnetically polluted area, such as a city centre or something like that. Shopping centres are another one. I get quite antsy and irritable and irritated as well just by the atmosphere. And I can't put my finger on it. I can't say that it's specifically Wi-Fi or it's specifically the, the vibrational level of those who are in a state of rampant consumerism at that moment in time but there is something very very tangible in me that I can pick up versus say for example if I'm out for a walk in nature or if I'm in that flow state with music or something else it is quite amazing how the world around us and these external influences can become something that subconsciously I mean consciously we may not be aware of it but our body is interacting with it all the time so yeah it's something of great concern to me like I I make every effort I can to avoid Wi-Fi where I can but I notice that every time I get rid of it somewhere for example in my house another 10 people or neighbours around me have it and it kind of comes into my room so it, it is a very very tricky one but it's something I think that starts with awareness and once people become aware of it maybe they can do something about it I think the onus is on people to do something about it for themselves and for their families and the people around them at that stage but we do like looking at solutions and you're somebody who's quite solution based and solution oriented I mean you'll, you'll talk about the control system and you'll talk about the problems but solutions are a huge part of the work that you do and your writings always seem to focus on the solutions Something that Richie Allen, who I'm very familiar with Richie's show, and we've had him on this show before, and I think he's doing some great work out there, and you've spoken to him many times, but very recently I heard an episode that you did on Richie's show about the Full Circle Project. Speaking of solutions, what can you tell us about that? What's the story with the Full Circle Project? Because there are a lot of people who are always saying, well, I can't do anything with daily life. There's nothing I can do about my situation. I'm aware of what's going on, but I really need a peg to hang my hat on, so to speak. So tell me about that, Max. Well, yeah, well, with Full Circle Project, what, what I've done with this is try to um, create a mechanism whereby people can link each other up on the ground, link themselves up and form support groups. And everywhere I go, I, I find people who tell me that they're awake, but they don't have anyone in their area to talk to, they don't have anyone around to coordinate anything with. And look, oh, what I believe we need is, is grass fires all around the planet, people getting active on the ground in their own community. You know, people are looking for an easy fix, someone to come along and give them a template or a formula they can use to fix the world, you know. But really, you've got to find something in your own community that's going to work, you know. I can't give you a formula to fix something in your town. I don't know what's in your town. Mm. You do. So what I'm suggesting with people is identify an issue in your local area that, that needs addressing and form a support group and address it, but don't try to put a, a band-aid on the symptom, go for the legislation that's created the problem and start grass fires and start pushing back against against government. You know, we've really got to start pushing back a full spectrum response to what is coming down the pipe. So with Full Circle Project, you can create support groups in your area. Like you go and log onto the site, put in your, your name and address and then do a search and find out who else has logged onto the project in your area and connect with them. And, and you'll find there are people all around the world. There's like 30,000 people signed up to the project now, or more than that, that are all part of the community connectors. So you, you have an opportunity to connect with all of these people, find people in your local area, identify a local issue, and identify a strategy that's going to start rubbing your council the wrong way and empowering the people on the ground in your area. You know, whether it's community gardens, whether it's suggesting the education system, whatever it is, you'll find that there's, there's issues there that you can deal with 
if you can just get some sort of local coordination happening. And that's what Full Circle Project can do. It can help you coordinate in your local area so that you can form some sort of action group and push it forward. And then if you have success, post it on the website, show other people what you're doing, or have a look on the website and see what they're doing and see what you can move forward, see what's working and see what isn't working. So, you know, it's just a way of um, getting some action on the ground and getting people, you know, doing things themselves, you know, not looking for someone to come along and, and fix things for them, realizing that they have to fix things themselves. People have got to be, you know, willing to get involved. It's the only way we're going to fix this situation. And it strikes me as a really good way of potentially combating isolation as well, because you spoke about the destructive process that enlightenment can bring. It, it is, and as, as well, it's the problem. People don't have these support groups. People don't have anyone to talk to. They do feel isolated, and that's what disempowers them. And if you can get them to feel that there is someone in the area that, that thinks the same as they do, then it is very empowering. I mean, just at the talks I did at AV7 a couple of days ago in England, we did a, a, a series of talks at the Ian Crane's AV7 conference, mm. and there were people there that had you know, a whole group of people, and they said, well, look, we, we've only just met each other through the Full Circle Project. There's like five people right here in my local town that I didn't even know were involved, and now we've got a local action group. Now we've got a support group. Now I've got people around me to talk to. Now I don't feel disempowered. Now I've got you know some sort of a, a group around me, that people that think like I do, someone to talk to. And this is incredibly empowering for people. So that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, so essentially it's a conduit for the creation of community because I think community is one of the things that has really broken down Certainly in my experience, Ireland being the example that we'll take. I mean, Ireland was traditionally a very tight-knit uh, type of a country. There were lots of communities, big families, and that has very much changed over the last 10 to 20 years. I can remember a time in my relatively short lifetime whereby community ties were much, much stronger than they are now. And I think that's a weapon that has been used. Maybe maybe it's a byproduct of the control system, but I, I tend to be quite cynical about it, and I think that most of these moves are planned, and I think the breakdown of community is a very important weapon. If I was one of the powers that shouldn't be, and I wanted to try to isolate people and to put them in a, a state of fear or a state of some kind of negative vibration, I think the removal or breakdown of community would be a very strong and potent weapon for doing that. So I think what you're talking about with the Full Circle Project is the creation or the remembrance or the recreation of community. And that is what will tie us together because I think it's very important. We, we can all go online and we can look at what's happening around the world and we could say, yeah, well, it's great. There was this march or this protest somewhere and this thing happened on the far side of the world. But if you're not seeing it at a, at a grassroots level and if it's not happening with people that you can relate to on an individual basis, if you can't pick up the phone or if you can't walk down the street and bump into somebody that you know is of like mind well that can be a very very lonely place indeed yeah absolutely and that's what we need to do we need to put this uh this this community action back together i mean everything they've done has been designed to break this down even you know the way they've uh, got bottle shops everywhere now you can buy cheap alcohol everywhere so you don't go to the pub and drink anymore it's sort of dangerous to go to the pub you could get a dui on the way home you know the police are going to be looking for drunks and rah 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 so you don't go out and socialise at the local tavern anymore, you buy alcohol and you stay home and you drink with your family and by yourself, you know. So it's breaking down all of these different social activities that we used to have. We don't go to town meetings anymore. We got all of our information from the television set. So that's something we're trying to do with Full Circle as well. Like, there's no real social networking on the website that much. 
I mean, you can connect with people, you can send messages to each other, but the last thing we want is a new Facebook. Yeah. What we're trying to do is to get people to use this website, use the connector on the website to connect with people and then go and meet them in the real world and get action happening in the real world on the ground. You know, get offline and get active in your community. We really need to do that. There's been so much of these online petitions and online activism which is basically just people sitting at home and being keyboard warriors and not actually getting out there and doing it, you know, which is what they have to do. We've got to get this kind of, get back to reality a little bit, you know. I think so. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the US as well. We all know that the US is a very interesting place and a very diverse place, but there's a lot of stuff going on that is of grave concern to those who are watching the geopolitical world, such as we have now. You're somebody who's quite close to, I would say, the, the initial spirit of what America is supposedly about as opposed to the police state that seems to be unravelling. And we spoke about Israel earlier on and I really wanted to talk to you or to ask you about your views on the ties between Israel and the US. Is the US the military arm or one of the military arms of the Israeli-based control system, that being the global control system and banking, etc., etc., big pharma, oil? And do you think that the United States of America, as it was conceived, is ultimately doomed, or can it be the shining beacon in the world for a big reversal? Because I really personally think that it's a country that's on the fast track to some kind of massive problem or some, not Armageddon or not some kind of apocalyptic vision, as most people understand the term, but I do think it's rapidly descending into a place that I wouldn't want to spend a huge amount of time in the future. So what are your views on that? What's the future of the US like and what is its place in, apart from just going into every country with a big imperialist policy, what is its place in the world at the moment? Well, it is a military arm of the New World Order. That's what it is. And it's completely run by the state of Israel. I mean, U.S. foreign policy is totally controlled by Israel. That's why America has such a big hand in the Middle East. You know, and there is a, a certain amount of despondency in the country, a, a certain amount of, of people there just thinking, well, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to get out of this mess. We don't know how to ever get our, our you know, autonomy back and how however to for the republic to recover and become the, the great republic that it's supposed to be. There is a, a sort of a, a feeling of that in the United States, but at the same time, there is a feeling that something good could happen. And when I meet the people in the United States, I mean, a lot of these people are very good people. They're very positive people. Yeah. And there is a certain sense of freedom that you have in the United States that, that you just don't have anywhere else. I mean, no matter how much the government tries to oppress them, these people believe themselves to be free and they are prepared to exercise that freedom to a great degree. So there is a chance that America will rise to become what it should be. You know, I don't think that people are going to take being pushed too much further. The problem is, of course, the diet that they're fed and the electromagnetic soup that they're being uh, fed and, and swimming in as well. You know, the diet that the American people are fed is is very, very bad. And this is something that it makes it very difficult for the people to ever be able to stand up against the government because they're simply not healthy enough to, in many cases, you know. So that's a bit of a problem. But again, I think you can only push a people so far. And I don't think the American people are going to be pushed too much further. 
Uh, of course, there is a danger, you know, with the world situation, the, the, the economic situation, how things could go very badly for the people of the United States if they foreclose on debts and things like that. So, yeah. But I don't know. I don't think that the people of the world are going to stand for this uh, cacistocracy to do what it believes it can, can do and can get away with. I mean, if you look at the people of America, you can parallel this with the people of Libya and the people of Lebanon and everywhere. I mean, they're all having a pretty hard time. And uh, I think that everybody is realising that it's our governments that are doing the whole thing. And people can see the role America's playing now, but they can also see that it's not really the American people that are doing it. It's, it's the, the foreign policy of the United States, which is controlled by Israel. And it's in a, in a pretty dangerous position at the moment because you've got Saudi Arabia and Israel are kind of joined at the hip at the moment. And they're basically both just sort of looking at America saying, well, we don't really need you anymore. We've got all your weapons that you wanted to send us. We control all your foreign policy and all your oil needs anyway. So America's a bit of a puppet on the string at the moment. And uh, you can see it's really trying to get out of some of these deals it's created. It's kind of gone into the Middle East thinking it's going to do things with its own interests at, at heart, but mm. really it doesn't realise how controlled it's been and that it's just been bled dry just about. And um, it's all going to the Middle East, and the Middle East is just basically saying we don't need you anymore. But I think the people of America, they will stand up. I really do believe they will. There is an overall sense across the country that um, something big has to happen, and it does have to be the people that, that make it happen. So hopefully we'll see that in the in the not-too-distant future. And do you think that could be something physical? I often hear people talking about a hot revolution in America and the fact that there is, um, there is an armed populace there to a large degree. Like, I'm quite struck as well by when we talk about police state, the militarization of the police force in America and how that has changed. And it's almost like the, the army come in anytime there's a problem. They're just called the police now. I know that's a, a real bone of contention for many of my friends who are in the US. They really have a major problem with that and they might be as patriotic as you like and might love America and the flag, but they have a major issue with the militarization of the police force and the controls that are being enforced now on a daily basis. Do you think it's something that could go hot? Could we look at a situation whereby people actually physically rise up and that there there's a violent end or a violent kind of physical rebellion that could happen in the States? Because well, most people think that could never happen. It couldn't happen to us. That's just consigned to the history books. But, I mean, history has shown us time and time again that these cycles do repeat. Well, I think it's something that could very well happen in the United States. It's certainly ripe for it. And the, the country is armed to the teeth. They certainly have enough weapons to be able to do it and to be able to pull it off if they really wanted to. So mm -hmm. it may get to that point. And I don't think the American people will allow themselves to be pushed down too much further before they will rise up and do something about it. So, I mean, I think that's what they tried to do with the uh, the whole thing that happened in Ohio recently. So, you know, the, the country really wasn't with them for that, but I don't think but Tell us a bit about that for those who mightn't be aware. Well, there was the whole, the, the, uh, the, the group, I can't remember the name of them, it was after the Bundy Ranch group, but there was a whole group of people that went over, took over the... Uh, the office of, of a, a local county and, and just basically said, we're making a stand here, we're going to take the state back, take the country back, basically. And um, one of the men was shot and you know, it all sort of went pear-shaped and went wrong. All the militias got involved, you know, it wasn't good the way it was done. It, it really was the wrong way to go about things. But that was sort of some sort of an attempt at that in there, I think. Mm. But, um, I mean, it might take something like Hillary getting in and... and 
um, seeing what she does to the country for people to stand up and say they've had enough. I don't know. But I really think that there is a possibility that it may go hot in the United States if the people are pushed too much further. But um, you know, whether that would work even is, is another question because you know how the media will play it. So, mm. you know. I'm very interested to hear your views on Australia as well, Max. Obviously, as somebody who's from Australia, you've got your ear to the ground, so to speak. And Australia is a very interesting country because most of the world sees it as a very carefree, happy-go-lucky land from the point of view of an Irishman and somebody who has seen the the economic recession in Ireland from 2007-2008 on and seen the drain of young people of Ireland who have largely emigrated to Australia. I mean, there's been a huge influx of not just Irish, but of people from all around the world to Australia. What's going on in Australia? Because it's not the pretty picture that we are led to believe. Most people, for example, with America in Ireland are led to believe that it's this amazing place that you go for a summer and you go and you see Disney World and you go and see football games in New York and all the stuff that we see on TV in the movies. And there's a similar kind of an attitude towards Australia. And because it's sunny all the time as well, which it never is in Ireland, everybody tends to put their problems aside and they're able to deal with life as it comes. But there is something quite sinister, I think, happening in Australia and to me it seems like a testing ground or an experimenting ground for the control system or the new world order or whatever you want to call it it's like stuff seems to happen in Australia first before it's rolled out elsewhere yeah well and it's getting very very bad in Australia especially in New South Wales uh, where the police have basically been given um, you know, unchallengeable power over the movement of individuals and really that's what it is I mean you, you can't do anything against what a police officer says. A police officer asks you a question and you don't answer, they just arrest you. And that's the way it is. And they don't need to charge you with any crime or anything like that. We're basically seeing the the deep state that lies behind the state Mm. becoming overt in in Australia is what we're seeing. The police have been given ridiculous powers. You can get seven years for protesting a a mine in in, uh, New South Wales. Are you serious? Seven years jail for protesting, for trespassing on, on a mining property or locking onto a vehicle, that's more jail time than you get for having an unregistered firearm or for raping a woman. Wow. So that's pretty disgraceful. They're talking about giving the police um, the powers to detain and question young people now for up to a fortnight. So this is children as young as 14. The police can claim um, terrorism suspects and they can basically take your child, your 14-year-old child, and hold them and detain them and interrogate them for two weeks solid. So you think about that, what that would do to a 14-year-old mind. I mean, Hmm. are you even going to be getting reliable information from a 14-year-old that you're subjecting that sort of treatment to? I mean, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. And, of course, they're they're justifying this, saying he's, he's doing it to do everything possible to protect the community from terrorist threats, of course. Yeah. Which is, yeah, this is basically carrying out acts of terrorism against children in, in, and under the guise or the pretense of keeping the society safe from terrorism. It's ridiculous. So this is the sort of stuff we're seeing in Australia, very, very repressive legislation. And uh, the, basically every single right that the people had has been removed from them in the last uh, 15 years since the 9-11 attacks. We've seen the introduction of about 70 different pieces of legislation. And when you put them all together, it's effectively removed the, uh, the people of all their rights, habeas corpus, the right to trial, the right to face your accusers, to know what you're accused of, 
Now, even you don't have to be charged with anything. Now, the police can just arrest you on the hearsay, say we think that you may be sus, and put you in jail, and then that's it. They don't need to charge you or have trial or anything. So, it, it's very, very, uh, it's a very dangerous situation, and it's really open fascism that we're seeing in Australia now. And it is. It's a complete totalitarian tiptoe. People mightn't accept it if it happened overnight, but when it's spread out over a number of years like that, people seem to be conditioned to accept it uh, much more readily, certainly. So how are the people of Australia responding to that? Is it an issue for most people? Do they see it as a problem or are they afraid and they think, oh, no, it is for our own good? Well, no, a lot of people are seeing it as a problem, but they simply don't know what to do about it mm. because, you know, what do they do? They stand up against it and you get arrested. So what do you do? Uh, it's it's a scary situation. I mean, even with some of the things that I do, I mean, like I've said, I, I've never paid taxes. I've never voted. I don't do any of this stuff. I just don't participate in the system. Yeah. And I really believe that I could stand in any court and I could defend myself and I could walk out of that court a free man. But if I'm not given the opportunity to go to court to defend myself, to state my case, then what hope have I got? If I'm simply going to be picked up by a man and the judicial system is going to be bypassed, I'm simply picked up by a police officer and driven to a jail and thrown into a cage, then what what does it matter what you know about the legal system? What does it matter whether you're innocent or anything? How do you prove anything if that's, that's the way it's got? You've just got to depend on the absolute integrity of these officers. And when you look at their track record, I'd say that they have anything but integrity. So it's a very, very dangerous situation. And the people are seeing it, but they really don't know what to do about it, you know, because they need a massive communal response in order to deal with this situation. So that's what I'm hoping to see in Australia. I'm hoping to see now whole communities simply down tools and stand up and say, you have to roll this back or we're going to dismiss you, basically. I mean, the government needs to be dismissed in Australia. It really does. It's overstepped the mark on so many occasions. And the people have to stand up and call it. Hopefully this legislation will cause them to do so. So, you know, I mean, I've been screaming out that these people need to wake up for many, many years that this sort of stuff is coming now that it's here. Hopefully it will cause them to actually get a bit of backbone and stand up and, and call it while we still have the opportunity to do so. Because now if this if this just continues and people just you know passively accept it and it becomes the norm, then uh, God help that country and God help any other country because they will follow suit. There are parallels between Ireland and Australia in that regard. It seems to be that we're the European testing ground uh, for whatever it is that the EU masters want to bring in throughout the uh, the Federation, which is essentially what the EU is anyway. Um, we seem to get it first here. And if the Irish people who traditionally down through history were the fighting Irish or the rebellious Irish, if they don't like it, well, do you know what? If it happens to be a vote, you'll go again, you'll vote again. And if we still don't get the result we want, well, tough luck. We'll distract you with, with something else and you'll all be grand in the end. So... I do see the parallels and it does make me wonder. I see an Irish people who are so put down and in so many cases don't even necessarily know that they have themselves for quite a long time now that that rebellious spirit, that will to do something about the situation, it really doesn't seem to exist on the scale that it did even 20, 30 years ago. And 
there are so many distractions thrown at the people by politicians and those in positions of perceived authority to take away from the bigger picture. For example, we've had a huge issue with water charges in Ireland over the last couple of years and it has threatened to bring down governments and it has supposedly changed the face of politics in Ireland over the last two years. And we had an election quite recently and everybody was talking about how the landscape of Irish politics had changed because... People had voted for independent politicians as opposed to the establishment parties and things looked like everything was going to be completely different. Fast forward over two months and a government was finally formed and it's the exact same government that had been in place despite the fact that they had got a mandate of less than 25% of those who voted. Not those who were available to vote but those who actually voted and yet they are the people who are having their strings pulled by Europe and their people put straight back into power. So to me, it just demonstrated, I mean, I woke up to this a long, long time ago, but it demonstrated yet again the folly of just blindly accepting a political establishment and assuming that things will change because we don't like them. We have to actually get out there and make things change. And if people wanted to try and do that through politics, fine. Personally, I would subscribe to the view that we should be non-compliant in the way that you have described and remove ourselves as best we can from the system. It's not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of bravery and a lot of self-assurance to do it. And I think that's where community comes back into it as well, if you can connect with like-minded people, such as you've described through the Full Circle Project. But do you think the system then, I suppose it's a long-winded way of getting to it, Max, do you think the system can be changed from within? If there's somebody out there who thinks, right, I'm going to become a politician and I'm going to change the world, do you think that can happen now? Or are we too far gone in that regard? Look, I don't really think the system's fixable. You, you might get people of integrity that can get within the system and it can undermine it from within, but that would be the best they can do would be uh, attempt to undermine it. Yeah. I don't think there's any real change that's going to be affected from within the system because we've got this, this party system in place. You know, and, and when you, you join a party, you, know, you join the Liberal Party or the Labor Party or the Tories or the Democrats or the Republicans or whatever, you've got to abide by the party policies and you agree to abide by the party policies. So... That's a problem, you know, the whole party system. So, you know, the best we can hope for within that system is to undermine it in some way and to expose the farcical and fictional nature of it to, you know, the population. The problem is most people get within that, that sort of a situation, they start getting a reasonably fat paycheck and they get a little bit yeah. cosy and, and things sort of go a little bit askew from that point. So, you uh, I don't know. I think it's uh, it's a it's a corrupt system. It's inherently corrupt, and once you start operating within that system, then you are corrupted by default because you're working within corrupt parameters. So you know, it's a hard one. I, I think uh, I'd like to see everybody just boycott everything, boycott voting, boycott the banks, boycott the smart system, boycott order followers. You know, mm. if you're married to an order follower, tell them to get another job. Or get another spouse. And by that, yeah. I'm assuming you mean police, military, that type of thing. Police, military, all these sorts of people. Anybody, like even someone who's working, you know, if you're working for a gas well or a gas company or a mining company, you go, go and get another job, get an ethical job. I mean, don't say, oh, I've got to put food on the table and someone else will do it. I mean, just just stop doing it and, and get another job. And people need to, you know, stop stop supporting people who are supporting these companies. And it's a hard thing for people to do, but we've got to stop supporting it. We've got to remove all support from these systems and all support from these companies and just boycott them. You know, a boycott, a massive boycott against anything that causes harm, injury or death 
would change the world. It really would if people were prepared to make that sacrifice and do it. Well, imagine, for example, if everybody decided in the morning, just tomorrow, that we're not going to use the banks for one day. Just for one day, everybody decided that. Things would change quite literally overnight. Everything would have to change just like that. Bang. That's the strength in numbers that we have. I think people often forget that because we've been so isolated and we all live in our little islands and we're consumed with our own bubbles and trying to survive, etc., etc., etc. You can use any excuse in the book that you like. But because of that, we quite often don't see the wood for the trees. We don't take that step back and realise, hang on a minute, Look at the amount of us. Look how many of us here actually are good people and do want constructive outcomes. And we do want everybody to get on and live peacefully and to have harmonious society or not have society, if that's the case, or whatever it is. You know, we don't want constant wars and fighting and controlling and slavery. And how few of those there are that actually are setting the agenda at the moment and I mean, that in itself does show that it is our complicity, be it on a conscious or subconscious level, it's still our complicity that allows the wheels of the machine to turn in the way that they do. So we are complicit, in my opinion, in our own downfall and we are responsible for what's going on in our own lives. And we might see it as this unstoppable monster and there's nothing we can do about it. But if we don't try, one thing's for sure, nothing is going to change. Yeah, absolutely. I've been calling for that since 2008 for a day of non-compliance. You know, imagine what we could achieve if people just didn't spend any money for an entire day. It would bring the entire system to its knees. It would. And it would create a hugely inspirational wave across the planet as well. Imagine how people would feel. That, wow, look what we just did, you know. It would inspire them on to, to more things. It would be as simple as staying home for a day. Just get all your supplies the day before. Just don't go out, don't shop, don't spend a cent don't work, just go on strike, the whole world, just stay home for a day. It'd make a, a huge change, it really would. And, and yeah, I've been calling for it for years, but but just boycotting everything, boycott the system, boycott anything that um, is going to cause you harm and ask questions, question authority on every single occasion that you can and rub this government the wrong way on every occasion that you can because you're just dealing with people. You know, and if they think they can destroy the world simply because they write it all down on paper and we think they have to go along with it and do it. I mean, oh, gee, I have to let you destroy this this environment because you wrote down on paper that you can do so. I mean, yeah. what is that? That's ridiculous. Why do we even think that way? So, you know, we've got to start questioning all these people and standing up to them and realizing that we're just dealing with people. The government isn't this big thing. It's just this idea that's populated by people who are, you know, abusing their office, abusing their power, giving themselves powers they don't have. And we need to start calling it and, and stepping into what we are and realising that we're people too. And we can question this and we can just stay in, stand in our hearts and do the right thing and things will change. So, yeah, I, I think non-compliance would be a, a wonderful way out of this mess that we're in if people were prepared to make those sacrifices. I totally agree. And I think creativity is another key to kind of unlocking the reality that we want to create for ourselves because I, I think we're all here to create we're here to create something it they might be wildly diverse for example somebody might be here to create music or somebody might be able to I don't know write a book or it doesn't have to be art but we're here to create and so much of what we do and how we expend our energy on a daily basis is not in creation you spoke about order followers what's being created there apart from negativity in a lot of cases I mean 
I think if somebody creates something new every day, even if it's only a meal for their family, well, that's a, a good place to start. It's something positive. It's something to hang the hat that I spoke about earlier on and to build from. You know, I mean, we, we all need some kind of a bedrock or a foundation to build upon. And it can start with those small things. But I think creation and creativity is at the root of it. I was on a path post-school and I went to college that path was very much the kind of the one most trodden whereby yeah you'd get the stable job that would get you lots of money and my idea was to get into either law or politics or both heaven forbid now considering where I actually have ended up thankfully I realised that because of the freedom that college allowed me in terms of the hours that I had in the day, that it actually pushed me back towards creativity. I was looking for something to fill the hours that I didn't have to be in college. And I started to create again and it got me back to music and it got me back to various different forms of the creative arts. And I realised, hang on a minute, I don't actually need this college noose around my neck. So I finished my course threw the piece of paper under a pile of books somewhere, disappeared and forgot about the education system from that day on. And it might sound easy when I describe it. And a lot of people will say, well, it's not that easy. But do you know what, Max? I think it is. As somebody who has done it throughout your life, I think it is that easy. It's just to take that leap and to wait for the net to appear because the net will appear. Would you agree? Well, yeah, it's it's looking at your your life from a different perspective. I've always viewed my life as art itself. I mean, the art of living, the art of being Max, the art of being me. So if you can view yourself as an artistic expression of creation and view your life as, as artwork, a, a picture to your painting throughout your life, you know, what, what is it? What is, what, is it, what is it to be you? What are you doing with the knowledge that you have? What is this whole experience about? It's about the art of being you. Why are you here, you know? Because you're unique. Every one of us is unique. Every one of us has a completely unique perspective of creation, a completely unique perspective of what this reality is and what we should do with it. We all apply ourselves to situations in different ways. You know, this system trains us to be homogenized and trains us to be like everybody else. So we have to think inside these little boxes and be normal and all of this sort of stuff when really what we should do is be ourselves and to create to... The, the fullest of our potential with the, the gifts that we've been given. Now, that's what I think life is about. It's about experiencing you. And if you can view yourself as art, as an art form, and everybody else as an artistic expression of creation as well, then you begin to look at things very differently and you begin to lose judgment for people because each one of them is painting their own picture. It's just a different picture to the one that you're painting. It doesn't mean it's wrong or it's any worse or of any less value than what you're painting. It's just a different pathway. So I think it's very important for people to look at their life that way. That's why I've always done what I've done and why I've always lived the way I have because to me it's just an unfolding experience, an unfolding picture that I'm painting. Mm. And I don't have a stake in the outcome of anything that I do. I think this is a, a lot of where people go wrong as well is that they – they put something in motion and they expect it to go a certain way. They have all these foregone conclusions of what it's going to be like when this project is finished and all this sort of stuff. And it's never really the way they thought. And because they've got all these preconceived ideas of where it should go, they often don't allow the unproject to fold the way unfold the way it could. And it might have turned into something completely different, something far better than what they imagined. Or it could just be something different to what they imagined. But, you know, 
people have these foregone conclusions and they have a stake in the outcome of anything that they do, and I just don't. Now, I put something in motion, I just let it go and see where it goes. If it fails, well, it wasn't supposed to work. It doesn't really worry me, you know. It just It's just something that I put in motion as, as an art form of its own to see where it was going to go. So I think that's uh, an incredibly important thing for people to do as well because it, it saves disappointment and it saves all this expectation we put on things. You know, this is a... This is a path of knowledge. It's a path of learning, and you really never know what's around the corner. So we need to get all these preconceived notions and all these opinions of where things should go out of our mind and just let things go where they want it, you know? You're dead right. Most of us focus on that carrot on the stick all the time. We're always looking forward, or in a lot of cases looking back, which poses its own problems as well. Instead of actually experiencing what's going on in the now, if you want to use that term. And it sounds very much like you've embraced the now and the journey and the experience as opposed to always looking to what's going on in the future. Because if you are fundamentally invested in the outcome of something and very little ever turns out the way we expect it to, well, then that can quite easily be perceived as failure. And that's going to stop people from trying things again and again and again in the future and experiencing more and more and they'll end up in some kind of a cycle be it the rat race going to work every day or whatever it is um, and th- that's a harmful thing I think well it is and it also it, it prevents the project from going where it could have gone there may be something in there that you didn't see that you're preventing from unfolding it's like you know when I've, I've done trips in places and I haven't really planned my journey mm. and people go well you did all this stuff how did you do that when you didn't have any plans I said well if I had plans I wouldn't have done it because I would have had other plans you know Yeah. so that's the way it works you sort of no stake in the outcome of what you do and I think it is very very valuable for people to, to think this way and to realise that they, they may often be present preventing something from blossoming the way it could have blossomed you know and it, it doesn't really matter what you put in motion it doesn't really matter you know it's, it's just all about creativity and about creation and seeing what we can what we can come up with you know we have too many preconceived notions and too many ways of judging ourselves and, and i think we've got to put all of that down you know and that's that's just the way i've lived my life and it's just kind of worked for me you know I'll come back again to the talk that you gave at Free Your Mind and how struck I was by the flow of that talk because you were uh, you were very, very jet-lagged, as you mentioned, and you were tired and you didn't really go in with a plan per se. You stood on a stage and you spoke and it resonated with so many people in that room and it really demonstrated to me because I was so familiar with your uh, movies and your YouTube channel and what's on the website and the work that you do and the articles that you write. But... I had never been in the same room as you until that day. And let's go back to the idea of thinking in language. Let's say I was thinking in language when I approached your work prior to the presentation that you gave at Free Your Mind. All of a sudden, I felt the work that you do at Free Your Mind. And that's the difference. And I think that that brings us back again to the idea of community and the idea of the Full Circle Project and trying to actually empower ourselves um, through others and with others, I suppose. Not, not so much through others. No one wants to live vicariously, but with others and to become more than the sum of our parts. So for somebody who's listening now and decides, right, well, I want to grab that power. I don't have a clue what it is that I need to do. Is there one thing that you could say? Is there one little seed that you could plant for the listener out there that they could start that journey? It's a question that I quite often ask guests on the show and I'm very, very interested to hear what your response will be, Max. Look, I think the most important thing people can do is to 
rediscover the beauty and the truth and the perfection of themselves. I really do. You know, I've, I've often said on, on many of my shows about how, how you are perfect at being you. No one can see the world from your perspective. You, you, are, you are completely unique in that. And with whatever flaws that you have, it's all okay for you to be able to see the world from that particular unique perspective. Mm. And when you realize that, you start to realize that you're perfect being you. So why would you consider yourself to be anything but perfect? And you really do discover your own perfection. And when you really discover your own perfection and, and you get rid of all the judgments you have of yourself, it breaks down all the barriers and the borders and the judgment that you have of other people. To me, that is such an important thing because once you have that connection, it, you, you can just approach anybody. You can talk to anybody. It doesn't matter. You don't have that fear of them judging you. Even if they do, it doesn't matter. It's water off a duck's back to you. Yeah. That's that's a problem they're having, you know. So it breaks down all these barriers and all these borders and it empowers you in an incredible way. And, and that, to me, is the most important first step that anybody can take. You know, and get to know your neighbours, get to know people so that you can stand up against this system, you know. We can do it. We can get through this if, if we are willing to put down our judgment of others. And we're not going to do that until we put down the judgments we have of ourselves and stop stop projecting our own inadequacies upon others because we don't really have these inadequacies. We're perfect at being who and what we are. And that's what we came here to be, obviously, because we exist. So, you know, to me, that's a, a really important insight. It may seem really silly and new agey or simple or something to people, but it's not. It's, it's absolutely profound. When you, when you really do discover this and discover this perfection in yourself, it's absolutely profound. It's life-changing. And to me, that, that's the most important step people can take, just to have that simple reflection. You know, it might only take them five minutes to realize this about themselves. It might take them forever, but um, just think about it and, and look within and, and see where you really are tune into that, that space behind your eyes and see what's really there. And uh, it, it makes all the difference. It made a huge difference in my life anyway. Superb advice indeed. And for anybody who might like to go down that rabbit hole a bit further, tell us about your website and your online presence and how they can find out more. Well, everything that I do is on a website called thecrowhouse.com. I've made uh, six films that you'll find on that website. They're all there for free. There's hundreds and hundreds of hours of me talking about this sort of stuff on radio shows in the radio archives. Uh, there's over probably 12, 1,300 pages on the Crow House now. It's quite a huge website. There's no advertising on it. There's nothing to buy. It's all free. It's just a resource hub for people. So, yeah, you'll find everything out about me there. And uh, the six films are there. And I'm actually in the process of making two more films. I hope to get one of them done by the end of the year. What's and, that about uh, or what are they both about? Well, one film is going to be part two of Transformation, Great. which is going to be called Cacistocracy. And the second film is a film that I've been working on for a couple of years about the Amazon, which uh, I'm trying to get out hopefully by the end of next year. But I want to get Cacistocracy out pretty quickly because I think the, uh, the world needs information. I couldn't agree more. Max Egan, thanks so much for joining me. It's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you and I very much look forward to doing it again. My pleasure, brother. Anytime. Alchemy. 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 I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Alchemy. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and ad-free format. 
and are very grateful for any little bit of help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on any donations that you might decide we're worthy of and it all helps. So, for example, if you could spare even the price of a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or something like that, it would go a long way towards keeping us afloat every month. Our donate button is on the website and support and assistance is all hugely appreciated. Indeed, thank you to everybody for your recent help and support. We're still here and we wouldn't be without you. Until the next time then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Well, it's a bit of an open play, no attempt to conceal it. And what to do with it anyway, it's pretty badly kept secret. Cause it's a bit of a slippery slope, so let's pretend we've not seen it. Cause it's a bit of a long shot to say. Then it could be over The drunkards get sober We're out of the clover As quaint as a drover That bounds on the tolling The fat lady sung her song Cause we would be somber To think it was over Well, it's a bit of an open sore Some people clink and they clatter But I spot a bother away offshore I hardly think that it matters Cause it's a bit of a normal day See how the women still chatter So it's a bit of a tall tale to claim That it could be over the drunkards get sober We're out of the clover As quaint as a drover That maybe the ship sailed That maybe the jig is up Cause we would be somber To think it was over See a little bit the bigger picture way Well that's the battle play Keep your head in the game There's nothing anyone can do Anyway Oh, the bar door was left open And baby that horse is gone Cause we would be somber To think it was over Don't tell us it's over So we might be spared this fate Cause we would be somber To think it was over